0: Two, three, You are listening to the Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind the bar stories with these founders. The Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at ten a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again at another exciting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host. My name is DJ Dick Hennessy. As always, broadcasting live from my living room on a beautiful, gorgeous day in Portland, Oregon. First day of May. Hope you guys are having a good day. Uh, Here at Felony uh, Inc., what we like to do is uh, kind of shine the light on the fact that in a society that houses the largest inmate population on Earth, anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. And so we try to do it one show at a time here at Throwing the Ink. Um, As always, my great co-host, the really cool Meg Thibodeau. How you doing today?
1: Hey, Dick. How's it going? It's nice to hey. hear your voice, as usual, particularly yeah, when I am talking to so many less people than I am used to.
0: Yeah, every every conversation experience
1: a fun little uh, fun little shot of socializing in the quarantine times.
0: Yeah, an unexpected treat during the quarantine age.
1: (laughs) I think we're pretty lucky we've got this, and just it's nice to have an opportunity to get together with each other and still be you know uplifting some voices out there, and particularly around prison. I think this. I mean, this time is so incredibly intense for everyone, but, you know, you and I know, and other people that have uh, ties to the criminal justice system, how incredibly scary the COVID virus is for people who cannot social distance. And that is so prevalent in prisons right now. And I mean, I just, I know you are, too. We're both, like, watching these conflicting news reports coming around where, you know, we get so excited when we see that potentially some folks are getting let out. You know, people that don't deserve to die in prison can go home and be on home confinement. And then I see these incredibly conservative news stories where it's just, like, absolutely insane to me some of the stories that are being put out there that, make it sound as if you know these terrible serial killers and i saw a report recently that they were going to let the green river killer out these real scare tactics that are being given (laughs) to the mainstream that oh my god we can't we need guns to protect ourselves from these people the government is just busy letting out the bad criminals it's such destructive narrative for you know a population of folks that in large part, are not bad, dangerous people.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, there's there's a time and a place for politics. Um, I think with this particular situation, you know, in terms of letting people out of prison early, you know, if if they're on their home stretch, if they're they're proving themselves to not be a threat to society. And, uh, you know, it's it's all about saving lives at this point. That should supersede everything. And and I don't know why it's not, in my opinion. I, don't
1: know why I, 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 feel, I feel really lucky that we have this um, podcast, that we get to come together. We get to have amazing people that, in most part, have also experienced being in prison. And we get to uplift the voices of people that are real, actual humans. We get to highlight the way that these people, quote-unquote criminals, actually have a great deal of contribution to make to our society and to people. And I've said this in previous podcasts, I think now more than ever, people that have experienced oppression, people that have experienced our government in such an intimate way, have a lot to teach us. I'm super excited about our guest, Manta, today from Bridges to Change here in Portland. Monta,
2: um, are you here with us? Yeah, I am. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>
1: We're so excited to talk to you. And I'm really curious first, you know, out of the gate, if you want to tell us a little bit about Bridges to Change. Monta has been a previous guest on our podcast, so there's a lot of information out there. But I'm super curious if you want to give us just or give our listeners a rundown on what Bridges to Change does for folks. And then I'm just dying to know how the quarantine and the COVID has impacted what you're able to do with people, and and how that um, how that paradigm looks from your very intimate perspective with people that are coming in and out of prison right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for having the opportunity to to speak about bridges and and the folks that we're serving out there. So, um, just real shortly, just a brief background Bridges to Change was actually um, founded by a husband and wife um, husband was previously incarcerated and they started in Clackamas County and um, to they opened up a house and they were the two mentors that were going to help people post-release and so Bridges to Change was really founded on um, folks that were justice involved leaving the, the criminal justice system and how to support them on their reentry. And so um, from 2004, Bridges to Change has taken that model and grown in in, uh, a few different ways. Um, So here at Bridges, we have three kind of areas of focus. One is peer mentorship, and those are peers that have lived experience um, and that can be um, justice involvement, it could be um, substance use disorder, it could be mental health, it could be all of those things often. And so really our peers and our peer force that are um, woven into all of these other programs I'll talk about are really there to bring that lived experience, to meet people at the time of reentry, to kind of give them hope, and, and not only that, like show them how to navigate things that can be seem simple for everyday people in their life like accessing snap benefits and getting their driver's license and how do you get a birth certificate if you don't have id and how do you get id if you don't have a birth certificate so super complicated systems that are not set up to easily to navigate the peers are there to do that and then our, our other uh focus of services is um recovery um uh, and mental health housing so this is recovery houses that are in single-family homes for the most part. We have about 60 of them spread across the Tri-County area here in um, Multnomah County, Clackamas County, and Washington County. And we also have um, some houses and services in Wasco County in the Dalles, and then uh, a couple homes in Salem, which is in Marion County. And so there's there's kind of three different um, types of housing. One is transitional, folks that are leaving incarceration and they're and they're coming out into kind of a a short-term stay where folks get free rent for say 90 days. Um, so that's kind of the transitional housing model. And then there's the um, um, uh housing model that supports people while they're in treatment services with us, and I'll come back to treatment. And then there's kind of our mental health or stabilization housing models, which are still in single-family homes, but there we're dealing with folks that have kind of a higher acuity or a higher need. Um, and so they need a lot more support. There's more staff attached to serving folks that are in those housing uh, environments. And the last thing is our treatment um, continuum. And so we provide outpatient mental health and addictions um, treatment that's tied to our supportive housing um, in Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington County. And and the reason that we feel it's so important to tie supportive housing um, to our treatment services is because we know the data tells us that it's harder for folks to show up for treatment if they don't have safe housing because they're just trying to manage everyday life. And so if we can remove that barrier, we have a better chance of helping folks. And so um, and so, those kind of are three main areas, which are peer services, housing services, um, and treatment services. And a large part of that is working with um, folks that are, are being released from prison.
1: I always say being released from prison is somehow and sometimes harder than going in. It's such a shape shift to go into prison and to rework all of your your identity and your social values and norms. It's a very different culture inside prison than outside prison.
0: Yeah. And
1: then you know, you do that, you make this huge shape shift that is incredibly traumatizing to the system to have to relearn everything. You know, when I was in prison, I actually forgot my social security number in lieu of my inmate ID number and re-memorized it when I got out. Uh, in, In addition to many, many other things that just, you know, left my brain. And then you get out of prison and it's like, you have to do that all over again. You have to relearn it and time even flows differently inside and outside of prison in a way that it's really hard for folks that haven't experienced that to understand the challenges of folks getting places on time, being professional, showing up. And it looks like people are just being flaky criminals when in fact they're truly struggling and need the kind of support that you, sounds like you're offering at Bridges. That's so cool.
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. And, um, you know, as a person that's spent From 1987 to 2005, about 10 years of that incarcerated due to my um, uh, my addiction uh, challenges. I paroled out many times. I've left the county jail many times, and every time I was in prison, I was never. I was never. And the majority of folks that I've met in prison were like really trying to plan how to change their lives. There was very small amount of people who are trying to be better criminals, in my opinion, Um, and so. All those times I paroled out, even though I had the desire, I didn't know how to do it. But the last time I paroled in 2005, I was lucky enough to come out to services um, similar to ours at Bridges to, at Bridges right now, which was I had uh, clean and sober housing, I had a recovery mentor, and I had treatment services. And because I had those supports, especially my, my recovery mentor, um, I was able to take that desire and put it into action because people showed me how to do it. And that was really vitally important. Um, and in fact, that recovery mentor was a program manager, became a program manager at Bridges That Change. And then two years after that, I think it was 2008. um he actually hired me. My first job at Bridges was a recovery mentor. I can never forget the day that he called me. He's like, "Hey, Monta, you wanna you wanna be a mentor helping guys get out of prison like I did?" You, I'm like, "Hell yeah! How do I do that?" <laughs> <laughs> and so that that was my journey at Bridges. And you know, I have lots of things that's happened between 2008 and now. And you know, now I've been Bridges, uh, the CEO over at Bridges to Change now since 2015.
0: So Manta, so, you yeah, said— should- Okay, uh, Monta, you say you're CEO of Bridges to Change now. That's correct. Okay, I remember uh, last for people that are just joining us or that just are hearing about Monta, uh, episode thirteen, Tony name podcast. You kind of went over a couple of these things, but at the time you said you were executive director. Is that the same yeah. thing, or have you evolved yeah. like that?
2: It's the, they're interchangeable executive director okay. and CEO are interchangeable terms. I go back and forth <laughs> between the terms. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's the same position. And I, and, um, yeah. So what year was that 2013 or no 2016? When did we do the last podcast?
0: Oh, it was about a little over a year ago. A little. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, so, just out of curiosity, obviously Bridges to Change uh, handles, like you said, peer services, housing services, which are critical for people just reacclimating to society when they're released. Um, what, the third thing, treatment services. What percentage of people that are getting out would you say require treatment services?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would be taking a guess on the exact number, but um, yeah, just I, a, would say, just I would say I would say I would say seventy or eighty percent needs some sort of follow-up what what often happens is we tend to um when i say we folks that are leaving incarceration um you know where we came in with a very active uh drug use issue and then we have like two three four years of sustained um sobriety we often think that we're kind of cured and we don't need the other supports and so yeah so Folks need some type of support in some dosage, um, but yeah, there's a large majority of folks that need follow-up care for sure for A and D. And you guys are
1: doing dual diagnosis work, right? Mental stress. health and addiction. We talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So um, when we first initially started our outpatient treatment for SUDs, it was clearly it was quickly and clearly understood that folks had co-occurring or they were duly diagnosed, which means they had both a SUDS, a substance use disorder, um, and a mental health disorder. And so we quickly went to work on adding in our license to provide um, mental health treatment so we can address and support folks that had both SUDS and mental health um, uh, challenges. And so it is super important, um, especially for folks in the stigma around mental health, for them to be in a place where they feel safe and supportive to, to speak openly and honestly so they can get um, their areas uh, of need met.
0: I feel like right now, uh, more than ever this time, it's kind of opening up the the dialogue for mental health issues. I think prior to this, it's been one thing that kind of been swept under the rug or kind of something that's been viewed as a weakness um, in the past. And now, and uh, fortunately, we've kind of created a, a, a time period where we can open the dialogue and we can have a, a real kind of discussion about how this is affecting the community and, and, and ways to kind of help yeah. you know, necessitate and help people out that are dealing with mental health, health issues. And I, I would say a, a very high percentage of people being released. I mean, I know we just talked about the percentage that you think – are dealing with uh, you know drug addictions that need to be treated afterwards. Seventy percent—that's a really high number. Um, mm-hmm. What what percentage would you would you estimate are dealing with some sort of PTSD or you know uh, mental health scenario? Well, if we you know
2: when we add PT, well, we don't need to add PT as PTSD into it because it is a mental health disorder. But a high, a very high majority of our clients also suffer from traumatic histories especially our women um and 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 our men um too and so a lot of folks have ptsd um as part of their histories um and i would say um i would just i I would hate to give a number on the mental health piece to it because i just i don't know off the top of my head but um i would say 30 to 50 percent of folks um, outside of a, a PTSD disorder, they, they might be um, having another mental health uh, disorder.
1: Why, why? would? Can you explain a little bit why PTSD is separate from that? I would think that the PTSD component would be, you know, I'm making a non-scientific hypothesis here that it would be close to 100 percent just can just under, Absolutely. you know, in the context of, prison being so traumatic itself, but then what leads you to prison is incredibly traumatic as well for people. Um, So is there, in addition to what you guys are doing, are you addressing that PTSD stuff to help people?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, and I totally agree with your statement. Like, uh, PTSD is should not be separate. Um, and yeah, so mental health providers within the organization or partnering with outside organizations are helping people um, to address their trauma histories. And so um, I'm not a trauma therapist, but trauma work is very difficult and deep. Oftentimes, we have a short amount of time to work with folks. And so Coordinating care with other organizations that can work long term with folks around their trauma is super important.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to use this platform a little bit more to kind of highlight, uh, you know, PTSD and mental health issues within the community. Obviously, um, Dave Dahl, the founder of this podcast, works really closely with. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the foundation he works with, but it has to do with mental health and. Um, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I feel like we kind of, as a society, kind of glaze and gloss over things like that still. Um, not that there's a stigma, but I think it's just, it's, it's kind of like, you know, people that go to jail versus people that don't. We, we, if you haven't gone through it, you don't really fully understand it. And how could you? Yeah. Um, I have a super. Con- was, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go
2: ahead. I was about. just going to say, I have a really recent example of that I can share. Um, yeah. It does not have to do with um, prison reentry, but it does have to do with mental health. And I also just say, like, when we, when folks see, you know, one, we need to stop thinking that um, we as a community and a society, we need to stop um, treating addiction as a moral failing. And I feel like people are wrapping um, mental health into that when they see people on the street living homeless. So, a few days ago there was, um, a teenage, um, young person yelling out in front of her house at her mom. Uh, I was, my wife had come in and said, Hey, something's really going on down here. Do you think you can help? Or, um, so it sounded like there was a fight. There was definitely some stuff going on and, um, across the street, um, one of the neighbors was filming this, this, um, this person, um, obviously having a mental health, um, breakdown. And I went over there to kind of just like talk with the mom. And I talked with the, the the young person a moment just to kind of get a gauge if there was a safety issue. But it was it was apparent that she was experiencing a mental health crisis. And I went oh, and she was screaming because the lady across the street w- was filming her. And she had her phone up And she's like, what's this person going to do with the film? You could tell it was really escalating her. And I had to go across the street and and I and I said to the lady, I said, why are why are you filming this? She's like, I need to film this for safety. And I said, you can see this person is clearly having a mental health crisis, and what you're doing is actually making it worse. Um, and the person really did not want to put down the phone. And so it's like instances like that where we see mental health and people totally addressing it the in the in the in the worst way that you possibly can. And so. Um, yeah, we, we need to rethink how we understand mental health and how we approach mental health, not only as providers, but as a community.
0: Yeah, absolutely. true. Right now, there's been you know more and more articles coming out, more and more research coming out, just explaining how uh, just the whole pandemic is going to have a gigantic adverse effect on people's mental well-being if it hasn't already. So yeah. I, I think we're going to see an unprecedented <laughs> amount of... Uh, new situations and uh, just problems occurring uh, at, a, at a very rapid rate here. Yeah, and what? just one of those things I like. You know, I like to highlight. Especially, and, I mean, it definitely doesn't help if you've just been released from prison, or you're about to be released, or you're even in. I mean, it just adds more fuel to the fire. Um, one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on uh, about with you was previously in the last uh, podcast, you kind of talked about how the cost of treatment is way less than the cost of incarceration, which mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us are kind of understanding of that. Um, why do you think that is?
2: Well, I mean, the cost to incarcerate just far outweighs the cost of treatment. Um, and so do you, is the question, why do I think the system set up that way?
0: Or yeah, why do you think it's just continuing to fail to evolve and realize that like what I understand is financial incentives. I understand that it's a huge economic platform and, um, and, you know, it's kind of draconian in a way the punishment is more important than actually rehabilitating mm-hmm. people. But um, what? why Why are more people not becoming aware of the fact that it's way easier and way more effective for the economy to just treat people and kind of nip things in the bud versus let them get, a, you know, bloom out of control?
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it just comes back to educating and changing the narrative. Um you know, we are still stuck in this get tough on crime era. And until we begin to shift those policies and that narrative around what we really need to do to create change, which is to treat and to give folks the proper care that they need, we can't move in that direction. Now, I feel like we're making some bipartisan shifts slowly, Um, but until people really get educated... And, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of people that are not educated or have a totally opposite belief and want to keep the get tough on crime, um, mentality. But once they're, once their family's impacted in some way, then they begin to understand and kind of see the system for what it is, which is completely backwards and broken. Um, the other piece is like, you know, and as you mentioned this whole, you know, um, you know, there is financial motives behind a lot of issues. Um, and if we really think about, you know, wanting to create change and if we really want to think about saving money, right, the whole point is for p- folks to reduce recidivism rates so people don't return to prison and so we keep costs down. And really the only way to do that is to give people the proper care and treatment that they need, if that's on the front end or if that's on the back end, you know, Um You know, I make no mistake about it. You know, there is a time and place for um, uh, for folks that need a time out for community safety. I mean, um, you know, I spent 10 years in prison. Did I need 10 years in prison for my um, for for the crimes that I committed? No, I needed treatment and I needed a timeout. You know, but I didn't need to waste 10 years. I didn't get the treatment I needed till the 10th, till the 10th year, essentially. And so we wasted nine other years uh, of treatment. And so um, uh, interesting enough, I think COVID is might begin to raise some, give us some data to see what it looks like um, for releasing folks earlier as normal or reducing jail bed usage and offering up other um, uh, alternatives to that. So here in Multnomah County, we are doing short-term trans-leave releases in Washington County and in Clackamas County, and we're providing treatment, housing, and peer services. And there are more things happening. So we might actually see some non-planned data points to show that, oh, actually, we did release people early and we didn't turn into Gotham City, and people changed their lives, you know? So I don't know if that a- even answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it did. It's uh-huh.
1: com- yeah, it's certainly complicated by privatized prisons, et cetera. So we've got dueling motivations, right, for the taxpayers to pay less money, but for the prison owners to still turn a profit. So there's been definitely some complications. It's of course, you know, a hope that something like this global pandemic is enough pain or enough suffering or enough fear for us mm-hmm. to actually change some of the fundamental things about our systems. Do you, like, will you talk a little bit more about the direct impact that COVID had, ha- has had on your organization and what you're seeing with folks sure. that are coming? I mean, are you dealing with people that are getting early release because of COVID?
2: Uh, yeah, we are. We're um, we're still receiving. Uh, well, for a moment, they kind of put a a pause on short-term trans leave releases um, because we didn't have the. Um, so here was the impact. The impact was. Because we're doing housing, treatment, and peer services, and then everybody's work was impacted in employment, we weren't able to move people through the programs at the normal pace. And so we are getting bottlenecked on open beds for releases. And so the county's made a way for us to open up capacity and to keep people coming in. Um, But our work has changed drastically because of COVID. You know, we're doing our part to reduce exposure um, and social distancing. And so we've quickly moved um, all of our treatment services to telehealth. And then our mentoring services are happening via phone and telehealth as well. But we are also still doing those essential peer services that need to happen, like getting people to Um, unemployment, the SNAP benefits, job search, there's still a million things that our peers are still out there doing face-to-face, but it has changed how we do things right now. Um, And one of the unfortunate things that we're seeing right now is we're seeing an uptick in um, folks that are not able to maintain their recovery. So we're seeing a lot of um, uh, folks that are using substances um, and alcohol at a higher rate, than we normally do, and we all, we believe that's contributing. Uh, the contributing factor is, one, isolation, and two, less face-to-face contact with service providers.
1: That's so intense. Let's. Yeah. Um, I want to hear more about this um, and have a couple of other questions, but we do need to pause for a second yeah. to do an ad, and we'll be right back.
2: CPA Dudes. Where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome back to the Fill in the Ink podcast. If you're just joining us, today's guest is Monta Nedsen. Am I saying that right, Monta? Uh Knudsen, but it's great. It's fine. Whatever. Knudsen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Knudsen. Knudsen, uh, the executive director or CEO of com and Bridges to Change is on a mission to strengthen individuals and families affected by addiction, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. Um, Monta, just out of curiosity, uh, I'm a elder member on, uh, and a participant of an organization called Criminon or, or Criminals Anonymous. I'm, mm-hmm. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that at all? Yeah, 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 Bear Cubbage. Yeah. Criminon, yeah, yeah. yeah Bear yeah. And Jane. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. Great uh, guys. I, yeah,
2: absolutely. How is that going?
0: Uh, it's, i mean it's going really good um obviously right now it's very challenging considering that meetings have to transition into zoom and you know online meetings um so it's a little bit more more difficult than normal but uh prior to that uh, everything was taking off really really well yeah um i, I saw that you guys had a uh, community support on the website different links and organizations so i wasn't sure how, how close you might have been with criminal
2: yeah, I think we have Criminon happening out at Club Hope, I believe. Um, and so, um, and Club Hope is one of our recovery drop-in sites where different um, recovery meetings happen. And so we just make space um, for folks to, to have their meetings. And so I was very interested in, uh, when I heard, first heard about Criminon coming out. Um, you know, because the reality is, is a lot of our folks, um, you know, have had long criminal histories. And the thing about recovery, I'll just speak for myself, for my recovery, while I might have gotten, you know, um, abstinent from my drug use, uh, it took me years to reprogram and to change how I thought and how I acted, you know? And so, Criminal thinking (laughs) is a big part of everyday life, actually, for, I think, everybody. Um, And so I was excited to see Criminon come in. It's just another, uh, from what I can tell so far, it's another program to help people focus in on really um, changing the way that we think and the way that we take action in our life. Um, You know, you probably know a lot more about it than I do, obviously, but um, I think it sounds awesome.
1: I think it's really so important, like you are doing this work that you're, you know, this inclusive addiction and mental health treatment. It's kind of confounding to me that these two pieces were ever separated in the world of psychology, that we have drug treatment as one program and mental health treatment as a separate program. And it seems to me that the more we can integrate and give folks a holistic approach that includes the concept of addiction is not just about substance abuse. It's about habits and identity and behaviors and all those things. Even the word addiction kind of becomes problematic because these are in many ways, just symptoms of being a human being uh, living within systems that are quite broken. And we use the tools that we have and we, uh, interact with the people that are in our circles and the things that we know as children. And it's just so important to continue moving towards a more holistic approach. What was for you, Monta, Ma- uh, Ma- the, the moment, can you talk a little bit about what it was for you that it, that catalyzed your transformation? Like what was it for you, that moment where you really felt that change and you really felt that you know that moment of clarity as they say
2: yeah no absolutely and I remember it um like it was yesterday so the last time I was arrested was 2003 on uh March 2nd and I and I remember just you know like okay here we go again you know um I got about a two, three year sentence probably out of this thing. And so I go through all my County stuff and take my plea bargain quickly so I can get the state side, um, and get out of the County. And I remember just hoping that I would make it to OSCI, which was kind of my mother institution back in the nineties. Um, and I just, I preferred I didn't want to go East with everybody else. And, um, and, uh, and I actually went to OSCI, uh, For a very short time my first couple weeks but then they transferred me to to uh two rivers anyway which is out in umatilla but i remember sitting on the yard where i've spent many years um and um and i was sitting on the benches in front of the softball field and i was like oh i'm so glad i'm here and in that moment i was like what am i thinking why am I so glad I'm here? You know? And I, and I realized in that moment that I got super comfortable with my lifestyle. And, um, and it was at that moment, that was the beginning moment was like, okay, I got to do some real work here. I got to do some real work. Cause this is, this is not okay anymore. Um, and then from that point on, there was just opportunities for me to get the help that I needed and, and eventually got me on. But but it was that afternoon on the yard just feeling good about making it to OSCI that I was like, this is not normal,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, but you know, it's funny how that works sometimes because yeah. you spend so much time worried about going to jail, worried about going to prison, worried about getting caught. And then when you do, it's kind of like a, a sigh of relief afterwards because you're not going to be worried about it anymore. Right. Um So when you were after that moment, how long was it, uh, when you had that, that you pursued a associate degree in addiction?
2: So I was released, um, I I was released in June of 2005. I became a mentor in 2008. And then in 2009, 10, I went to Portland community college to work on my addictions, um, associates degree. And at the same time, um, uh, you know, I was at Bridges for three years and I went to Volunteers of American managed programs for five years at the same time getting all of my clinical experience. And then um, after that, in 2015, I came to Bridges as their executive uh, director. And so I kind of made the first couple of years I was framing houses and building houses. And um, I quickly learned that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life because my body couldn't take it. And so. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how all that worked out.
0: It's a little inspirational, actually. Um, so just out of curiosity, I know it's kind of off-topic a little bit, but you said in the previous interview you uh as a youth, you were arrested, you ended up doing five years in McLaren for um, mm-hmm. uh, kidnapping, home invasion. Yeah. And this was uh, way before Measure 11 times. Yeah. Um, obviously, if Measure 11 existed back then, you would have got significantly more time for that, uh, I'm yeah. assuming. What are your feelings about Measure Eleven? I mean, just personally, from experiencing both sides of it.
2: Yeah, I was just speaking to one of our drug court judges um, in Clackamas County about this. We had a virtual coffee meeting last week. Um, you know, I feel super strongly that um, the the power needs to return back to the judges, and we need to get out of this um, mandatory these mandatory grids you know yeah. um and that judges need to have the power to take all the circumstances about that human being standing in front of them into consideration uh for their sentencing um, especially for serious crimes you know and so um and like you pointed out I got lucky I did I got sentenced to 5 but I did 2 years and then got out as a juvenile I would have done I would have got the 90 months the 90 to yeah I would have got the 90 months you know um yeah, yeah. So, and I would have went from McLaren to OCI that was 87. That would have been, you know, that was a whole different time.
0: Yeah. I feel like anytime you implement a mandatory minimum, uh, there is certain points of it where it is beneficial in terms of efficiency and cost effectiveness. But yeah. by far, the large majority of it is just completely just wrecking havoc on society and really causing a strain on the system. Um, And to take away, I mean, it just essentially turns judges into robots that can't maneuver or do anything.
2: Well, yeah, and it just goes back to show just that whole process. Like, oh, Major 11 was great until all the white suburban kids started getting arrested and going, you know, then you started hearing, you know, outcry for that. And the same with the opiate crisis. You know, it was fine when our black and brown brothers and sisters uh, were out there um, suffering from this disorder, and then as soon as it hit white America hard, then it's a crisis, you know? It's super sad how all that works. And yeah, it, it seems it's like so a really... much
1: racism and classism and uh, really a, just a great deal of dehumanization in this system. It's really quite profound. And it sounds like, while you guys are doing so much good work for so many people, I suspect that you're curbing some recidivism rate. I'm so curious how you personally keep your head up in what might feel like, you know, bringing a sandbag to a tidal wave sometimes.
2: Oh yeah. You know, I'm in the middle of one of those tidal waves right now. And so it's super hard to, um, let's see. How can I say this? It's super hard about it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's super hard to lead at this level. We're, you know, we're not a giant organization, but I manage uh, an $11 million budget and 170 employees that are all funded by different county partners. So there's a lot of politics at play at my level of making sure all this stuff happens. So um, it's really the really the, the challenging part is keeping client-centered first and worrying about political optics second when it's usually in reverse. It's usually political optics are kind of at the top of some of our funders um, end and client-centered is second, although important, but not as important. And so, so going through that struggle to kind of like when you feel like you're taking on a tidal wave It's even harder to take on that tidal wave when you don't have everybody leading from the same lens. And so, um, you know, I I mean, I appreciate all of our funders and partners, but sometimes it is a bit challenging to get the job done and worry about ground level work first and kind of the political atmosphere second.
1: Right. I mean, even the 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 nonprofit, the structure of NPOs, the structure of the way that we go about solving the dysfunction of this society is problematic. Because even mm-hmm. in the process of you having to get funded enough to do this work, can be can create situations that mean the work gets stifled in ways and and burnout. I mean, really, I'm yeah. just so curious how you do keep your strength up how you keep your head up because what's being asked of you here is intense and is in some ways you know a bit of a paradox
2: yeah you know I you know I try to keep you know for me personally I really focus you know part of my recovery is self-care and so I make sure I'm getting the the amount of input of the self-care that I need in my life and that's through my yoga practice, through my um, exercising regimen. And then I race super bikes as a hobby. And so those are kind of my three, my, my three outlets uh, to, to make sure I'm staying level-headed. Uh, but the work nonetheless, you're right, it's hard and it is. there is a ton of burnout. Um, and just as a leader, being able to take care of our line staff who are out there actually doing the enormous amount of traumatic work that they have to go through every day. And trying to pay them in a way that is going to support them and their, and their families. You know, nonprofits tend to get, you know, I can go on for a long time around parity around nonprofits and counties and how things are funded. But um, we're under, underfunded to do the hardest part of the job. <laughs> so, so Yeah.
1: That self-care piece is so, so vitally important to be able to walk through these paradoxes and still do a really great job and be, you know, as effective as, as fundamentally effective as the elevator pitch for what you're doing, right? Because Bridges to Change is doing amazing work and you can talk about it and talk about all of the things that are happening and it's truly, truly good. And then also, like you're saying, there's this, other piece it's challenging it's demanding and then there is trauma just from working with trauma so we talk a lot about the folks that come into your program that are clients but then there's Mm -hmm. the staff as well and the ways that they need to be cared for it's big stuff it's really you know it's impressive to me that you have hung out in this arena for so long. And I think it speaks really highly to Bridges of Change that, mm-hmm. you know, you're still doing this work, you're keeping your head up and the the, the organization is, is flourishing from what it sounds like. The last podcast you were on, you talked about opening um, an Afrocentric house for women. And I see on your website that that house has been open. Will you talk about a little bit more about that process and how that's going?
2: So that was uh, funded through um, a MacArthur Foundation grant that was for two years. That program grant funding um, ends August 28th. Uh, We're super excited about that program. We've learned so much in terms of, one, the need for um, African-American or Black identifying women in our community. And so the next stages of that, kind of the end of that grant, the exciting thing is um, oftentimes grants end and then they go away. But the county is looking very closely and is committed to uh, funding that program into the county general, kind of the general contract fund. And so we're super excited to see kind of the the Diane Wade 1.0 version coming to a close and then what the diane wade 2.0 version is going to look like and what we would like that to look like and and our partners as well is to um see that program nestled into um black organizations within the community and giving the supports um that they need so so um lots of lessons learned there and also um uh it was super great to kind of be chosen to kind of lead the first go around of that programming. Uh, the second thing we have going on right now, that's um, what we, well, we have, like three things going on that I'll plug really quickly because it, it's, it speaks to our different um, areas that we're focusing on specific communities. So uh, right now we're partnering with Miracles, um, uh, which is an African-American recovery organization in Northeast Portland. They also have some affordable housing So we're partnering with them on a health share grant where we're going to open up a men's house that we have um, in northeast Portland. And Miracles is going to provide the service structure. We're going to provide the housing and housing support. And that is to bring black men home to northeast Portland um, where the services are at. And so we're super excited about that. And then um, we did a similar housing model with quest center who focuses on our lgbtq plus community so we have a we have opened the very first lgbtq plus recovery house that's um integrated into their services and then we're also doing that same thing with um with the Instituto of Latino and Puente's program at Central City Concern, where we're providing the housing, Central City's providing the, the culturally specific treatment services, and so I say all of that to say that we're we're really focusing in on the areas and the communities that have specific needs, and those needs are they look different than um, needs of of um, you know of the dominant culture. Um, of needs. You know, a a person who is a person of color leaving incarceration is vastly different than a white person leaving incarceration. And so we want to make sure that we're meeting everybody's specific needs.
1: Right. And the folks that are primarily incarcerated are people of color. We just can't talk about the criminal justice system without addressing the deep racism involved in the system. It's so important to Make sure there's space to give special needs to folks who are just, just not, they do not have the privileges that folks getting out. I mean, I've experienced it as a white woman getting out. My mm-hmm. primary response from folks that I talk to my experience with is vastly more privileged than a person of color would be. You know, it's, it's just, it's not, you know, they're inseparable. Systems, racism, and criminal justice. So it's so important to be treating um, and caring for folks differently, and giving some priority to people that just don't have the same level of privilege. It's so messed up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for doing this work. This is so uh, so helpful. I'm actually really curious outside of this interview, you know, to to get more um, information about bridges to change and see what Absolutely. you guys are doing in our city. It's just such valuable work. Is there any, you know, we're, we're not quite done, but we're approaching the end time of mm-hmm. our podcast here. Um, you know, what in these last few minutes would be a message or, that you would like our listeners to hear? You know, what, what kind of are the last, the big thing that you would like to ask for, that you would like to share with people, words of wisdom?
2: yeah, I mean, just that our community um, continues to embrace and support change um, and understand that that process looks different for everyone. Um, and that um, and that there's belief that people change, you know, and so that just continued community support uh, to support our folks that are re-entering. Uh, it's a scary place, you know, it's a scary thing to do to re-enter our society after being incarcerated um, and to do as much as possible as we can to think from their lens and support them in a way that's helpful to them. Uh, So always keeping those things on the forefront um, of our minds when we're thinking about our um, previously incarcerated individuals.
1: And to remember you said something earlier that really struck me is And I've had a similar experience in doing work inside prisons and with various organizations is my primary experience as an inmate and as a person working with inmates is that most people in prison want something better. It is the smaller percentage of people that are really, truly stuck and desire more criminal behavior. And to remember that the human beings coming out of prison in large part have a deep desire for something better, but that desire alone is not enough. That people exactly. actually need support. They need someone to believe in them. They need some kind of a treatment or support system. They need homes to live in. They need basic needs met so that that desire can become the reality that is actually quite a massive contribution to our society. And like I said earlier, now more than ever, it's big stuff. It's really special. And I know it's hard and it can be relentless. And also it's so beautiful. I really truly like to live in a world where I believe that our individual, you know, our efforts actually do make a difference even in the face of a tidal wave. Do you want to tell us your URLs and how people can find you and find bridges and any other partners or folks you'd like to plug
2: yeah yeah um anybody can find us at our webpage, which is wwwbridges 2 um, and there you'll find a link to how to access the key folks for all of our different types of programs um and uh you can also find us on our bridges to change facebook page and our bridges to change instagram also i'll just note that every friday at 9 a.m. and I would love to do a reverse interview and maybe have one of you two on Is I'm doing a virtual coffee with Monta for 30 minutes to talk about um, how our community is impacted uh, around criminal justice issues, race issues, um, and just overall access to care. And so you can find me uh, this morning at 9. I spoke with um, a potential elected official about what their plans were for um, North and Northeast Portland. And so... Yeah, you can find me there at 9 a.m. I
0: okay. would, awesome. would love to do that. It actually works with me and my yeah. schedule because the show isn't <laughs> until 10 on Friday. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Monta, I just have one uh, quick two-part question for you real quick. Uh, just out of curiosity, checking out the website, com, I noticed that on the board of directors, there was a, a member named Eric Knutson. Is there any relation? Or is that just coincidental? That, that is coincidental, but I
2: will tell you this. Eric our names are spelled different but Eric and he wouldn't mind me saying this identifies as a person in long term recovery retired Portland police officer and I was arrested by him in the 90s and I remember getting the recovery talk from him before he took me to the justice center (laughs) that is amazing and now he's on my board so it's super cool
0: I gotta love that
2: that. so cool yeah (laughs) oh
1: man I love stuff
0: so, like that. We are yeah. all human beings. Yeah, yeah for sure. It, uh, so one last thing, uh, Mata, before we wrap, um, on your website, uh, there's a lot of career positions available, um, especially right now, people are looking for work, people want to help out. You know, um, What are you looking for, for people to apply uh, for jobs for Bridges to Change? And uh, how do you go about to apply for that?
2: Yeah, folks can find us on the careers button on our Bridges to Change website. Um, we have, I don't even know how many jobs we have open right now. I think we have like 20. Uh, Yeah, it looks like a lot. Yeah, so uh, recovery peer mentors are folks that identify with people with lived experience. Um, And so we're always looking for folks. Those are entry-level positions. And so if folks are not certified to be mentors, we help make that happen for them after their employment. Um, And then there's a variety probably of clinical positions that will identify the certifications needed for that. There's some front desk staff positions, probably. Um, my, my, the most important position, well, not the most important, the position that I personally need right now out there is I'm looking for um, a housing director to work on my executive team to help us manage our housing portfolio and work on our expansion into building affordable housing. Um, and so that job is posted. So if you know any folks um you know, it'd be great if I identified as a person with lived experience. It's not required, but really looking for some folks that have some housing development or just some housing experience to come join our executive team to help lead us to the next, to the next phase in the housing part of what we're looking to do, which is to build and create permanent housing.
0: I mean, I'll definitely keep my eyes open for that. um, And on that note, I want to thank you again, Monserh. Excellent guests, as always. Can't wait to have you back on the show. I'm sure me and Meg would love to do your virtual coffee. And, uh, yes.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think it sounds like fun. And I uh, just want to remind you guys, every Friday at 10 a.m., you can tune in to Fill in the End podcast here at StartupRadioNetwork.com. And in the meantime, we'll see you next week. Stay All right. Thank you. Thank you, very much. Thanks, Monta.
2: Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you can easily control how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Visit callruby.com slash startupradio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Felony Inc. sent you and get $150 credit.